Hello, art friends. This is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients in artwork and life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli, and this is episode eight. You have one job, and this is for you, graduation babes. <laughs> I've been having some weird technical difficulties last week was the first episode eight that was published and I got a couple listeners messaging that about 45 minutes into the episode the the audio just dropped out I have no idea why (laughs) but it was from the recording um and so maybe it's not the best idea to be recording this on my iPhone anymore. I <laughs> um, I also think it might have had to do with the fact that I had run out of iCloud storage, which is also something that happens when you record episodes on your phone. So <laughs> I upgraded that. Hopefully this works out. But I, um, I recorded this a second time. Um, and decided to do sort of a commencement style episode and then uploaded that into GarageBand for some editing and I'm having a heck of a time with some interruption and like some like weird interference so we're gonna just try this again (laughs) this will be I think shorter maybe a little more streamlined and maybe that's how it's supposed to be you have one job should be streamlined should be simple um and maybe it's better to keep advice you know I don't even like using that word advice but you know it's probably better to keep any type of information being bestowed upon graduates right now simple because everything else is decidedly not simple (laughs) and And the last thing you need entering this brave new world is lots of complicated advice. And so I want to keep it simple. Um, You have one job. And I want to tell some stories about what I think that one job is. Um, And full disclaimer, like in most of my episodes, this is my opinion based on my life experiences. (laughs) Um, And so take what resonates with you and leave the rest. But from my perspective... um, based on some of the stories I want to share. Your one job is to do what you want. I'm not the only one to think this. There's this really fascinating speech that the brilliant Alan Watts gave about finding what you desire. And you should listen to that if you're interested in this topic. But it really is that simple. Your job is to to figure out what you want and do that. So simple, not easy. (laughs) Um, It's not easy because whether we chose it or not, simply by virtue of being born into these human bodies, we have inherited a culture and inherited a planet where globally it's still... In, in most societies, considered virtuous to give up what you want for other people. And that's shifting, I think. And it's still really hard. It, it's kind of amazing, actually, how much pushback I experienced just trying to 
to do what I wanted. <laughs> it was, um, and simultaneously, y'all, a lot of the pushback that I imagined would happen never did. So, <laughs> a lot of the bravery and courage that comes along with doing what your soul and what your insides really want is self, a lot of the struggle is self imposed, you know? But I want to talk about this because the reason this episode was important to me to sort of flesh out for people that are graduating, entering into this sort of new economic phase in their life, because let's be honest, graduation is an economic transition. You have been living with your, you've been living in more of a childlike state, and now you are walking through this portal into this period of your life where you will be expected more and more to take care of yourself uh, in economic ways. And a huge part of that is finding a job. And we are in a pandemic <laughs> that is not, that is, and, and things aren't going back, you know? And what a weird time to be graduating. And I was thinking a little bit about it and I was thinking, wow, it's already hard enough for people to do what they want under the best of circumstances. (laughs) And now the world is so different and instantly different. And I was thinking, I can't speak for all the graduates listening to this or or anyone listening to this, but I know for myself, if I'd graduated in this time, it would have been unlikely that I would have done nearly as much of what my spirit and soul truly wanted because when things are collectively difficult, I think one of the first things a lot of people do is they double down on tough love with themselves, right? And like, I don't know how that looks for y'all, but for me, this is how it looks. You don't have time to be fucking going after your fairy tales, Borelli. It's not time to follow your squishy feelings, all right? The world is a tough place. You got to do tough things. You got to make sacrifices. I'm going to go out and get a fucking job. (laughs) Like... And maybe other people's voices are not quite so harsh. Maybe they're even more harsh. I don't know. But I think that some version of that narrative plays out with lots of people during tough times. And the reason why I thought it was important to tell some stories suggesting otherwise is because um, the older I get, the more I firmly believe, firmly believe that far more damage is done to the planet and to one another by people living quiet lives of desperation, doing things for others, and squishing down as hard as they can what they deeply want to do. The, the, people, the people that are really, truly doing what they want to do um, are doing so much less damage to, to the planet and one another. Um, and I think that the narrative around that is a little bit wonky and, and really needs some adjusting. And so I wanted to talk about that to, to people that are getting ready to enter into this new phase of their life, because there's a lot of pressure on you more than ever to do what adults think you should do. And if you take nothing else away from this podcast episode, except for this one line, it's this. 
adults have no business giving you advice. No, No adult has any business giving you advice, myself included, which is why I say take the parts that really resonate with you from this episode and then leave the other shit. And the reason why is because all adults, myself included, have played a really big role in the way the planet is right now. (laughs) And, And so by virtue of being completely programmed in the ways that the world is right now, we unfortunately don't have the best advice for you. <laughs> you are here to create, help create something that doesn't exist yet. And there will be wisdom from people older than you. You will, you will absolutely get clues for your path along the way. And to, to a large extent, there's not going to be handholding <laughs> and that and that is really counter to what you've been probably told explicitly and implicitly in your education so far in life um i know this because i spent you know i have a masters in education and i spent years as a school teacher preschool and elementary and now i teach adults and teens on a contract basis and i've got to tell you that most of formal education, whether it's, you know, K through 12 or even college, um, is built upon this premise that you are to do what other people want. (laughs) I think I, I think that I didn't even really wrap my head around that idea until I went to grad school at the university of Texas and grad school is and PhD work is kind of special because they're so much more self-directed and being in a, a self-directed program where professors weren't hand-holding and telling me what to do made me really wrap my head around just how much that had happened in K through 12 and undergrad and it's kind of messed up that we do that to y'all I mean, I, that was one of the biggest reasons I left. I mean, there was many reasons, but one of the reasons that I had a hard time staying in a public school teaching environment was that I felt like I was sort of being forced to participate in a system that was educating kids in a way that I found wildly unhelpful. One of them being, you should follow what we say, right? Public education, whether you're aware of it or not, was conceived of during the Industrial Revolution when children were being taught to follow an industrial recipe for work, right? Like everyone was, most people were blue collar back then. Most people were working in industries and on assembly lines. And so a school was really constructed around an assembly line. There's bells that ring, there's periods. You line up at the door, you follow the teacher, you write your name on this and you have, there's all of these regimented systems and the teachers really enforce throughout your entire time in school, different levels of compliance. And to the extent that you're able to comply, you will succeed or fail. (laughs) And 
those of you that have succeeded, not all of you, but many of you that have succeeded in a system like that are going to have the the biggest struggle. Um, I know I did with really, truly identifying what you want because I can't, you know, I, I can't speak for everyone. I keep saying that in this episode, but I feel like it's more important than normal because I feel like I'm talking very directly from my experience in this episode. And so it's important for me to let you know that this is from my perspective only. Um, but in my pers- in my perspective, in my past, when I when I graduated first high school and then undergrad, I didn't even realize that the things I wanted weren't things I wanted. I I was very programmed to want what was what I was told to want, and it wasn't until I started trying to achieve the things that I wanted or thought that I wanted in the adult world. But I didn't have the systems forcing me to do it anymore. I didn't have the system saying, oh, you get an A for doing what we want. <laughs> and without, without that externalized reward, I started to run up against the limitations of what I thought I wanted. And my 20s were a big experiment in kind of two phases. The first phase was of me just really going after what I wanted. And then like, I think a lot of people at a certain point, it's different for everybody, but at a certain point, and for me, it was 25 people go, okay, playtime's over. Doing what I want is over. Doing what I want is selfish. I gotta, I gotta like double down on this adult thing. Right. And it, and it gets harder because people around you are doubling down on the adult thing. And when I hit 25, people were getting married and getting houses and having families and, and getting more deeply entrenched in their professions. And I was still waiting tables and making art and wanting to travel all over and be really bohemian. And I, I wasn't really ready. Um, but I felt like I should be ready. And so then the second half of my second, the second half of my second decade in life was really spent trying to do what I thought I should do. And I learned a lot about what happens in both of those phases for myself. And so I want to tell you two stories from that time. And the thing that's important for me to let you know before I do that is that these stories aren't a roadmap for how things should go for you. Um, in fact, ever like, in fact, your dreams for your life may be a hundred percent different than mine, um, and you could still get a lot out of these stories if you keep in mind that the stories are not a roadmap. The stories are context to guide you when you create your own. Um. I was sharing this on Instagram TV a little bit last week about how when we graduate, all of us inherit this checklist of doom, (laughs) which, which is also different for everybody. Just like how everyone has a different roadmap when it comes to doing what their soul really wants for their life. Um, everyone's checklist of doom is also different and it's important to me 
that that is understood before I share these stories as well, because um, I'm going to be telling these stories through a really sort of biased perspective (laughs) of what is meaningful to me. And it is in no way, shape or form my intention to project those values onto you. And when I was sharing this Instagram TV episode about the checklist of doom, I talked about my checklist of doom, which was get married, get a house, have a good job, have children, do it by the time you're 30 years old. Like I felt this tremendous pressure to do those things. And no one was explicitly telling me either to do them. Sometimes my my mom did. (laughs) Mostly she wanted me to be happy though. Um, but the, a lot of the things on the checklist of doom were things my parents wanted. And also they were things that a lot of my immediate social group wanted. And so that I felt pressure to do them too. Um, the key to a checklist of doom is that almost always there are things that your immediate tribe or your immediate social group are doing that don't fit with your dreams for your life. And I realized that all of our checklists are so different. When years ago, my cousin, um, we were, I was driving him. I was visiting Ohio. I had already moved to Texas. I was visiting Ohio for some reason and I don't remember why. And I was driving somewhere just solo one-on-one with my cousin who had just started his freshman year of college. And he told me something that I never, I'll never forget. He said, you know, Becca, he goes, I know this is crazy. He goes, I'm 18. I just, he just got into Ohio State, which is a really hard school to get into. Such an awesome privilege. He said, and I, my roommates and all the guys in my classes and everyone in my immediate social circles there are all kind of doing the same things. He goes, you know, they're living it up. You know, they're going out late, they're drinking, they're going to games and parties and dating lots of different girls and just, they're trying out life. (laughs) Isn't that what a lot of us do? Especially, I guess, guys, you know, I don't really know what it's like to be a guy, an 18 year old guy, (laughs) but he was kind of sharing his impression of the mainstream. Right. And he said, and I just really don't want to do those things. He goes, I, he's like, what I really want is to meet one girl and get married and have kids like right now. Like I could do it right now. He goes, and I don't even know how to talk to them about that because I know they'll think I'm nuts. He goes, what 18 year old guy wants to do that? His checklist of doom was totally different than mine. So keeping that in mind, I want to share with you how this kind of manifested in my life, Um, but not as a replacement for your own values and your own roadmap. Um, Okay. Okay. So one of the weirdest and neatest things that happened to me when I was 22 in my final year of undergrad was that I was invited to (laughs) to join a network marketing company. Now, I don't know if I would recommend anyone do network marketing companies. I think... I learned a lot from being in one for a few years. Mm, I wouldn't, if, if your goals are financial, (laughs) I wouldn't recommend it. Um, 
you'll end up alienating a ton of your friends by trying to use them as a as sales as, as, like sales warm markets and and you'll also you know feel all this pressure to like spend all this money you don't have and I don't know there's lots of reasons why I have an issue with network marketing companies and if, for those of you not familiar I'm talking about like you know Mary Kay cosmetics, LuLaRoe, yoga pants. Like, and if you're listening to this and you're in one of those companies, no shade on you at all. I did one for years <laughs> and it didn't work out for me, but it, it works for a lot of people. Just, <sighs> and, um, and that being said, it was one of the best things that I could have done in my early twenties. Um, I didn't make a lot of money. It wasn't, like I said, if, if your goal is to make money, I don't know if I could recommend it. But if your goal is to experience a different way of looking at work and life, I think network marketing is fascinating. Um, my friend Lisa came to me. She was actually one of the few people like just slaying it in this particular network marketing company. It was 2002. And she said, hey, you should check this out with me. And I, it was like really interesting timing because I was starting to feel some of my first itches to do what I wanted to do. And so I was like, yeah, this feels like kind of risky. And it it was like, I ended up dropping 600 bucks to start (laughs) this company, which $600 is a lot of money now. It was even more back in 2002. And, um, there was all of these just really, you know, the big events with the lights and the speakers and all these people talking about following your dreams. And this was just very new to me. I, I, really drank the Kool-Aid. And I don't even know if I like saying Kool-Aid because it was good. Like it ended up actually really um, serving me later. It was like some of the first people that really said, what do you, what do you want? Now, granted what they, what they wanted me to say was to sell internet. That's what it was. It was selling internet <laughs> back when the internet was just becoming a thing. Um, but it, but going to these events and being around lots of young, excited people got me to really thinking about, for the first time, for the first time, y'all, I was 22 and no one had really asked me that in a way, in a way that I felt like I had permission, right? Like you would get asked that by your guidance counselors in school and your parents and and other adults in your life, what do you want to be? What do you want to go to college for? And there was, but I never got the sense that there was like freedom for me to say, I want to go check out Thailand. <laughs> like I, I don't, I'm just, I actually, that was not something that I even thought about when I was young. I just pulled that out of my butt, but, um, and I, I just said the phrase pulled out of my butt, which is like, I don't even know why. Like, who says that on a podcast? <laughs> but um, but it just felt like I, I just knew what was what people in my communities were expecting me to say. Oh, I'm going to Kent State. I'm going to be a teacher. Like, all these things are very appropriate. Like, people know how to handle answers like that, right? But then all of a sudden, there was this network marketing company who was like, no, 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 like, be wild, be free. Like, what do you really, like, what would be the craziest thing? Like if you had a magic freaking wand, what would you create? 
And, you know, a lot of those, that type of energy creates lots of materialism. I mean, there's a lot of people in those companies that talk about fancy cars and big houses. And it was kind of cool for me to, to think about those things and to have permission to think about those things. Um, but it, for me, it, it started to get me thinking about freedom, like real, like real freedom. And it was so, I was almost intoxicating y'all this, this environment. I think a lot of people who get really into network marketing companies will describe that sort of experience of sort of being high on life at these events. And, um, it was so, I was so young and it was so intoxicating that I decided like, this was going to be the year I, this was going to be the year that I just stopped doing everything that adults wanted me to do. And I remember I, <laughs> in like the winter of 2002, I, I go to my parents and I tell them I'm going to drop out of college. <laughs> I had like five months left. Like, what was I thinking? I have no idea. It was ridiculous. Um, I'm sure they were sick about it. Um, and thank, and thankfully, they had no qualms about throwing the gauntlet. <laughs> and my mom was like, yeah, no. <laughs> they actually um, paid for three of the, my four years of my undergrad, which what a privilege to have that. Um, and my mom was just like, no, we pay for school. You don't, this is not your say. <laughs> and so, and so thankfully I did, I finished my undergrad and I'm glad because teaching is one of the joys of my life. And I wouldn't have been able to teach if I had, if I had quit. Um, but, but immediately, immediately after graduating, I moved to Miami, Florida with Lisa, my friend that got me into the network marketing company. We were going to expand the deal down there. And, um, It would never have happened if it weren't for the energy of that company. Kind of like I was too shy, too introverted, too much of a people pleaser to ever do something like that on my own. Um, and that was really, but it was really important that I did it. It was really important that I did it. Um, I got a lot of pushback, um, so much pushback because nobody in my immediate circle, family or friend wise was doing that at all. Um, it looked really radical. I, I know my parents were like, oh my God, what's wrong with her? I was, I'm the oldest daughter. I'd always been really reasonable, quote unquote reasonable <laughs> in my decision making. And it was just my mom. I, I said this in the Instagram TV episode that I, that I shared um, last week, but my mom couldn't see me off the day that I left. Like she was so upset. Um, but I, but I went and y'all, Miami was luxurious for many reasons. But the main reason was that in Miami, there was literally nobody putting any expectations on any of my choices. And for me and what my soul wanted, um, that was really important. You know, I think I think this is something that I've started to learn just a few years ago, and I don't know if there's a way to describe it. I think it's one of those things that you just kind of have to experience as you get older, but your soul knows stuff way before you do. And so my soul was like, you need to go to Florida. 
And I had no idea why. Like, <laughs> it was such a weird thing to want, but I wanted it. And the thing that, the reason I want to tell you this is because when your soul knows something, but you aren't consciously aware of what that is yet, you will, you will only be able to have awareness around like what your ego wants. And so the, when I say that, this is what I mean. When I moved to Miami, I, there was so many things my soul knew deep down that I needed there. But I didn't know what those things were. I wasn't conscious of those things. So, so, but I was conscious of what my ego wanted. My ego wanted to like go somewhere with beaches and sunshine. <laughs> my ego wanted to go somewhere with big shiny cities and be young and crazy and wild and experience new things and get away from everything that was routine in, in the first 22 years of my life, you know? And the reason that can be, I don't think risky is the right word, but the reason why that can be problematic is then I immediately started beating myself up. Oh, you're so shallow. Oh, you're so shallow. Look at these ego things that you want. Like a real adult wouldn't just go chasing these egotistical things. They would stay in Ohio and be responsible and find a job and be by the family and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and so I, I just kind of wanted to to share that dichotomy with you because your, your brain will kind of try to like shame you out of doing all kinds of stuff that your soul wants. And it'll, it'll use the ego as like an inroad. <laughs> it sure did with me. I was like, I was like, you know, I'm, tw- I'm about to be 23. Like, who am I to like, go like party on the beach? <laughs> like I need to be responsible and find a job. And, um, and here's how you know if your soul is is pulling the strings underneath. Like here's how you, here's how I have found that I can know that I can trust my decisions um, being soul based is when you think about doing that thing, you will feel lighter. You will just be like, oh. and just going to Florida instantly made me feel like lighter. That is. A radical thing to suggest. Um, so many people will say, like, you know, so many people, I, I'm trying to think the best way to word this. There are so many people on this planet who have really, really drank the Kool-Aid. So this is an, an opportune time to use that phrase, drank the Kool-Aid when it comes to being an adult is hard. You are supposed to suffer. You are supposed to do what other people want. (laughs) And so when you start making decisions based on feeling good, immediately there's this cultural kickback in your head and out in the world that says, no, no, no. What are you doing? being an adult's not about that shit. You know, I actually had, when I moved to Austin, one of my friends in Ohio straight up told me I was being selfish. Um, 
And one of the things that you may, I hope you have the fortune of discovering through the experience of having people shame you for decisions that you make is that most of the time, no, not most of the time, all of the time, they're really unhappy. <laughs> and, um, so, so I moved to Miami and no one's there telling me what to do. And immediately I have this experience doing something that I'd never had experience doing before. Actually, no, no, no. I had an experience doing something in a way that I had never done before. And that was finding a job. I'd had plenty of experience looking for jobs up till this point. But the way that I found my first job in Miami was totally unique. I had never taken this approach before. And it ended up really shaping my decision making in my life going forward. Um, Because there was nobody around telling me how to do things. And it was just like juicy how delicious it was to like be like, I can do what I want. I can look for any job I want. I can wear what I want, hang out with who I want, wake up when I want. <laughs> it was it was awesome. And and what a radical thing, right? Like we imagine as soon as someone has freedom to do what they want that they're going to like go crazy. Um I mean, I did a little bit, but mostly I just listened to my soul. And no, no experience better outlines this than when I first looked for a job. I remember, I'll never forget this day, I told Lisa, I was like, I'm getting in my car and I'm just going to drive around until I find some cool places that I think I want to work <laughs> based on sight, sight unseen, right? We lived pretty far out of the metro area of Miami because much more affordable. So it took me like an hour, 45 minutes to an hour to get into central Miami. But um, I drove in and I started tooling around the neighborhoods in my car. And I remember I finally get into Coconut Grove, which Coconut Grove is really different now than it was 15 years ago. But um, back then it was really bohemian and artsy. And I was just like, oh, this is this is where I want to work. <laughs> I remember parking my car and started driving around and or I'm sorry, walking around and I um noticed that it looked like a really happening part of Miami, but nobody was it was like a ghost town. There was nobody in in or in the stores or out. So it was like totally desolate. And I was kind of like, what's going on going on here? And all <laughs> All of a sudden, the sky opens up and the rain comes down and I experience my first Miami storm, (laughs) which is very common, an afternoon storm in Miami. It's like the most water you could ever imagine falling in like 15 minutes, not even like five minutes, and then it goes away and the sun comes back out. So I immediately run for cover and I was like, oh, this is why no one's outside. (laughs) And I run in, under an awning and I see a for hire sign in the window. And I was like, oh, wow, cool, synchronistic. And I go inside and there's this guy standing there. His name was Brad. Brad was 
such a character. I remember him so vividly. He was, he probably should have been really pale. He looked like he was Irish, but he, I think, tried to counteract that by lots of time in the sun. So he was mostly just really red (laughs) and he had bottle bleached hair that he like combed over (laughs) and he talked a little bit like a car salesman, you know, kind of like that kind of guy. Um, but he was nice and he's like, Hey, what's up? And I was like, Hey, are you hiring? And he goes, yeah, yeah, we're hiring. He goes, what are you looking to do? And I was like, Oh, I'm a, I'm looking to serve. And he said, have you ever been here before? And I said, no, I just actually moved to Miami. And he said, Oh, okay. He goes, cool. Well, he goes, we're kind of different. He goes, why don't you, um, why don't you come in tonight? I'll buy you and a friend some dinner and you can just kind of check it out. (laughs) I was like, sweet jackpot. And I remember going back to, to the apartment and I'm like, Hey Lisa, check it out. This place offered to get us dinner. And she goes, did you just walk into a strip club? Like, is that, is that what they are? (laughs) Which I had never thought of. And I was like, no, no, I'm pretty sure it's a restaurant. And she's like, okay. So we, we uh, dressed us like our first night on town. Oh, y'all. It was, I mean, just driving under palm trees to Coconut Grove was, it was luxurious. It was, it was so new. Just driving for a night out felt like an adventure. And we get down to Coconut Grove and the sun is just setting and now it's popping. People shoulder to shoulder everywhere. And some of the most beautiful people in one place that I'd ever seen, just like tons of skin, tons of tans, tons of designer, everything. Oh, it was, it was an adventure. I'd never seen anything like it. We go into this restaurant. It was called Cafe Tuta Tango. It's no longer there. In fact, the entire, the entire sort of outdoor shopping plaza that it was in called Coco Walk is no longer there. But, um, the restaurant was packed and there was one, it was the best table in the house. Brad had saved us the best table in the house. We go and sit down and, and here's the deal with Cafe Tuta Tango. It was a, the idea was, this is an artist's freaking loft. <laughs> and what would a bohemian artist loft look like if there was lots of food and art around? And so what they did was that they had Spanish style tapas dining. So lots of small plates, which was also new to me. Was, I, there was no such thing as tapas in Ohio in 2002. So uh, this was like like totally new to have these little tiny two or three bite plates coming out. And then scattered throughout the entire restaurant are painters and drawers and sculptors and artists making freaking art. Y'all, holy shit. There was a tarot card reader and periodically, like every half an hour, the lights would go up and this music would come on and these belly dancers would come out. It was amazing. (laughs) And I remember Brad came up at the end of our meal and he goes, Borelli, he's calling me by my last name because he knew, y'all, I was so working there. (laughs) He goes, Borelli, what do you think? And I looked at him and I said, please hire me. (laughs) And that 
process from beginning to end of how I just organically was like sort of like drawn into tutu tangle like a magnet based on following my gut. That was how I made every decision going forward in Miami. It was glorious. I had never done anything like that before. I'd never had the space to do anything like that before because there was always people around me kind of dictating how my day-to-day was going to move forward. And, you know, if you're listening to this story, um, I'm, I'm not suggesting that you move across the country and be a bohemian. But what I am suggesting is it's kind of important. When you first go out on your own, it's kind of important to have this experience of making decisions in this way because you're not really given permission to make decisions this way when you're young. There's there's no room. You're expected to go to school between these hours and do homework between these hours and on the weekends you kind of do what your family's doing and it's just like it was just the freedom was luxurious. And then, and then I started to, not surprisingly, get a little bit starry-eyed for the surface of things. But y'all, Miami is so surface. And um, I made some decisions that got me into trouble. Not, not, nothing bad. Um, nothing involving drugs, which I feel like most people that get in trouble in Miami is for that. <laughs> but um, but I started making decisions based on the ways things looked on the surface instead of the way they made me feel. And and the way that it got me in trouble was this. I um after about a year and a half of going into my second year of living in Miami, my roommate at the time, she's amazing. She was, she was moving, moving into a more serious phase in her relationship with her boyfriend and she wanted to move in with him. And so I was going to have to look for a new roommate. And so I started putting some feelers out and one of my colleagues, um, a bartender that I knew his friend was looking for a roommate. And I knew this guy, he was on the surface he was perfect. He was the perfect roommate. In fact, I had like like this whole scenario of how our friendship was going to be. He was like, on the surface, he was like that really fun gay guy that every straight woman wants as a friend. Like, he, you know, like, girl, you look so good in those jeans and slap your butt. And you're like, huh, you know, like that whole sort of will and grace kind of thing. <laughs> like, and um, I had hung out with him and had a lot of fun in in the past, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm definitely down to potentially roommate with this person." And he invited me to his place. It was this gorgeous uh, retrofitted Art Deco hotel that they had turned into apartments on the beach, weirdly in my price range. And I was just like, "Yeah, this is perfect. I'm gonna I'm gonna do this." Um, and also it should be noted that I felt kind of funny about it and I didn't know, I didn't know why. And, and you know what, this was probably the first time that I really ever experienced making a a surface level decision and having really conflicting gut reaction 
because I have been kind of increasingly making decisions based on like the appearance of things, you know, Miami is so appearance and, but this was the first time where I was like really making a big decision based on what the appearance of it was and having this very noticeable pit in my stomach feeling about it. And I ignored it. I was 23. <laughs> I was still learning how to listen. And um, so I'm getting ready to move in. I, like, like I mentioned earlier, I live like an hour away from South Beach. And so I'm like taking one load of <laughs> stuff at a time, like an hour back and forth, back and forth. And um and my this this guy that I was about to move in with, he was like, "Hey, he goes, stop doing that." He goes, "I'm." He was a pilot for a major airline, and he was like, "I'm actually about to go out for a couple of days for work." He said, "Why don't you take my?" He had a Land Rover. He's like, "Why don't you take my Land Rover? It has more space. You can bring more stuff." And I was like, "Wow, what a, right nice nice thing to, to offer." Doesn't know me very well. So he gives me the keys to his Land Rover. I go, I load up his Land Rover, I bring it back. And as I'm pulling into the space, like if you've ever been to South Beach, you know, like everything's packed into South Beach. There's not a lot of space. And so I was pulling into this gated parking lot behind the apartment. And there was a bunch of other things happening. There was like people pushing a stroller and there was a c- cars trying to leave. And so I pull in and I pause with the rear two tires of the Land Rover had just crested the the ridge of the gate line. And as I was waiting for space to move forward, the gate starts to shut and for whatever reason, it doesn't bounce back. You know how gates will like bounce back when they sense that there's a car there. And I think it was because the car was just a little too far forward, but not far forward enough to avoid the metal of the gate just like scraping along the back of his Land Rover. Oh, y'all. I immediately call him. I'm crying. I'm so young and just feeling really stupid. And he's so nice. Don't worry about it. It's not your fault. Um, I'll talk to my landlord about it. He goes, it's accidents happen. He's like, that's why you have insurance. He's like, it's okay. Really, really nice. Now I'm like definitely not going to you know, driving this Land Rover anymore. (laughs) I don't have my bed at the apartment yet. So I fall asleep that night on the living room couch. That night he gets home from his, his piloting (laughs) and he, uh, goes out immediately. So I, he doesn't even come home which was something that I think was probably pretty common, but I didn't realize it. He would he would come back from like flights and he would immediately go out with friends. And his forays out and about in the world um, included lots and lots of drugs. <laughs> and I know this because when he came home, he woke me up in what I could probably only describe as a total rage. He, he was a totally different person and I was, I was ter I was terrified. I was just like, what am I going to do? I was actually concerned for my safety in that very moment. I was like, I, I mean, he's kind of a smaller gay guy, but I don't think I could take him. Like it was, I was just like, how did I misread this? Like, this is really not okay. He was 
calling me all kinds of names, really, really bad. He was slamming around the kitchen. He shattered some stuff. He was really angry. He had tried to turn on the the gas range because he wanted to cook something, but he couldn't get the pilot light to go on. So the, like the whole apartment smelled like gas. It was it was scary. Um, I still don't totally remember, but at some point he just was barely vertical. Like he was really messed up and he kind of just stumbled into his room and passed out. And I, I remember walking into the kitchen, like shaking, turned off the gas and just, I'm pretty sure there must've been some universal intervention because to this day, I have no idea how I fit all of the stuff that I'd brought in the Land Land Rover plus some into my little tiny Cavalier <laughs> in one in one load in the middle of the night and I and I left and went back to my old apartment and what I I didn't realize it then but like looking back on it now I realize what happened after that experience was that I stopped trusting my intuition and it's unfortunate that that was what happened because <laughs> the reason I even moved in with someone like that was because I decidedly ignored my intuition. It wasn't a faultiness with my intuition. I, My intuition was just fine. <laughs> but I was really, I lumped it all in together with my decision making. Like this, this is not good. There is something wrong with my decision making. I should not, you know, I didn't feel safe looking for another roommate. I was really rattled by the whole thing. And I decided to go home and it was really abrupt. I don't, I don't know if that's the right word, but the shift was abrupt. I went from this very organic sort of feeling my way forward with my heart, which had really been working until it, until I stopped using my intuition. Right. And then I got myself into trouble, which is part of being human and I told myself a false story. And the story that I told myself was, this is what happens when you go out into the world. You're not ready. There's, you're, you, you're not ready to be an adult. Look at how you screwed it up. <laughs> you need to get your shit together and be an adult now. That was the story I told myself. And one of the first things I did was I started immediately asking my parents for lots of advice and then, and then subsequently took it. So I came home, I moved back in with them. I immediately took a job at a local preschool. Um, I began in that process of working at the preschool, starting to put out my resume for public school art teaching positions. Um, and then subsequently got hired in a school district. I moved, you know, down by the school district. I got my first solo apartment, my first car payment, (laughs) all of these firsts, right? And I was so happy that I was doing all of these really like, like, for example, the art teaching job that I, that I ended up getting when I went in to do my paperwork to start the onboarding process with this district, the one of the administrative assistants in the office, the 
the human resources office. She told me, she goes, you know, 150 people applied for this position. Like I was so proud of that. Like uh, my parents were so proud. They were telling everybody. I, I was so excited about this shiny new car and this apartment. There was all of these things weirdly that had been on my checklist of doom, (laughs) but I was making everyone else so happy that I was really convincing myself that I was also happy. And there was in, in the mix with all of that was this sort of decided lack of excitement. And I was just, and I don't even mean to suggest that all of life is supposed to be exciting because it's not. (laughs) But when I had been in Florida, there was this feeling of you are supposed to be here. You are learning things here that are part of your journey. And I was missing that feeling. I was feeling like I was kind of just a little bit numb. Like there was just just kind of feeling a little numb. Like, well, this doesn't really feel great, but it's pretty responsible, you know. And um oh, it was it was a rough four years. And if I could if I could kind of share one of the most important things that I gleaned from that time. It is what started to happen to me. Um, I don't know if energetically is the right word. Maybe here, but here's a story to kind of articulate, I think what I'm trying to get at. A few years into this, right? So I'm I'm definitely doing all the things on my checklist that I'm able to. I've I've gotten this great teaching job. I start waiting tables in the evenings, which is way too much, but I'm trying to pay off my student debt that I had from my final year of school. I mean, isn't that insane? Just side note, my parents paid for the first three years of school and just one year with interest put me 11 grand in the hole. Like what the? Anyway, <laughs> so I'm trying to like feverishly pay that down. And... I am exhausted. And then I'm also trying to like have a dating life. I meet a guy dating for a few years. Um, I'm just, you know, trying to be an adult. (laughs) And I'm also really not doing what I want to be doing. And one of the first things that happened to make me like take notice was that I was driving in one of those, have you ever been in one of those Bed Bath & Beyond like soul-sucking shopping plazas? When I say Bed Bath & Beyond, what I mean is like usually those shopping plazas have like, there's like a Bed Bath & Beyond and a Target and like a TJ Maxx and there's just like all these box stores and then like there's like a subway in between and and they're just kind of like soul sucking they're they're miserable to be in everybody's in a hurry there's tons of cars everywhere you inevitably have to walk across tons of cement to get to this big fluorescently lit box and you're like uh and the entire interior of the box is is completely designed to make you feel inadequate so you buy stuff and just everything about that experience is not for me. Some people love it. <laughs> if you're one of them, that's fine. Um, but I remember um, I was 
in a place that I think a lot of people are about to relate to, what I'm about to describe. I was... I was coming on the ta- off of the tail end of two back-to-back shifts. So I had been teaching and then serving and then teaching. And then I was go- trying to go home. So I had so I had teaching, serving, teaching. I was exhausted. And I had to stop at a Target or something and I'm pulling into one of these plazas. And I to this day don't remember. It's probably good. I don't remember what happened, but somebody did something really rude in their car. Like it was pretty rude or or I perceived it to be rude. And I snapped. I snapped. And I rolled the window down and I had never done this in my life. I stuck my hand out, middle finger up in the air and screamed at this freaking person. And it was, uh, it was only sobering because of Miami, right? Like if I had graduated college and gone straight into this mundane, do what, living the life for other people, living life based on what I think I'm supposed to live, living life for this checklist, doing what I think I'm supposed to be doing, that kind of behavior would have gotten really normal. <laughs> like, I think for a lot of people, it has gotten really normal. Maybe if you're listening to this, you're like, oh man, that's me. And that's that's not your fault. <laughs> that's like the world that that we have right now where that kind of rage is really commonplace. And one of the things I've learned for myself is that that kind of rage is very unnatural. That is not who we are as people. And um, (laughs) Miami was really important because it gave me the contrast to know that I could live for years without ever even thinking about sticking my middle finger up at someone. And y'all, if you think that I didn't experience bumper-to-bumper traffic and shitty drivers in Miami, you're, you're delusional. It was like triple as bad as in Ohio. <laughs> I, if, if you think that I've painted this portrait of everything being perfect in Miami and everything being gloomy in Ohio, that's not how it was. The only thing different was that in one scenario, I was living a life that felt in alignment and in the other, I wasn't. And if you repress what your soul wants for long enough, it, oh man, anger and rage will come out. (laughs) And, um, and that's how I know, that's how I know that far more damage is done on this planet to to the earth and to one another by living in a life of quiet desperation and my life of quiet desperation was really beautiful and on, on the surface people looking at my life you know like were i think they kind of envied it a little bit people that knew me closely probably didn't be <laughs> because I told them the underbellies of it. But when I moved to Austin and left the life in Ohio behind that I had created, it confused a lot of people because on the surface, my life was really great. And I was 
in despair. He was in despair. And this is a weird sort of place to even get into the story because it really has to be talked about how privilege kind of factors into this. You know, like I, I didn't realize when I was younger how much privilege I had. Um, I, I think that the way that we gauge privilege is based on our immediate circle. And I know when I, um, went into my undergrad, I, (laughs) I decided, you know, I was so shy, so introverted and, you know, for good or for bad, I've always put myself out of my comfort zone, which is something I'm proud of. And one of the things I immediately did when I went to my, into my undergrad was I decided to rush, which was really out of my comfort zone. And also just not really even in my sort of like personality type. (laughs) Like I was not the personality type that you would think of to rush a sorority, but I really felt like I need to get, I, I will just like hermit in my dorm and never see anybody if I don't do something to interrupt that, that habit of mine. (laughs) So I rushed, I got, I got a bid at my first choice sorority. I was so excited and it was a wonderful experience. I learned so much. Um, but I also then immediately, my immediate social circle were really privileged women. Um, I would say almost none of the women in the 100 and plus number of women in my sorority worked, uh, on the side. Um, there were a few that I became close with that did have jobs, (laughs) but, um, and this is no slamming on them either. If I didn't have to work, I sure shit wouldn't have worked. Like that, they just, they came from families that were able to support them. And and that's amazing. Like, why wouldn't you (laughs) take that if you had it, you know, um, most of them had cars that their their parents or families bought for them you know I was driving this rusty clunker and that died in the middle of my undergraduate program and I was always exhausted because I was always working and juggling sorority stuff with school stuff and it, I felt very um surrounded by privilege and it wasn't and then of course I moved to Miami where everyone is like so glitzy and glamorous and I'm like frumpy and <laughs> Midwesterny, <laughs> and I just always kind of felt a little bit like out of my league, you know. And it wasn't until I was older that I realized, oh wow, you know, just just my skin color alone has endowed me with so much privilege. I also came from a solidly middle class family who was able to to pay for some of my college, like. As I got older, I began to really recognize that my I did really struggle in some ways to do what I wanted, and in other ways, I had it pretty easy. And that sucks. Like, if you're listening to this and you're like, sweet, <laughs> this is a great story, but I don't, I don't have the privilege to just do what I want. I have kids. Maybe you have kids. Maybe you um, have health problems. They're debilitating. (laughs) Like, 
there. Maybe you're in your, maybe you, you support your parents financially. Maybe you have to work multiple jobs. Um, and unlike me who worked multiple jobs and was able to (laughs) use that work to kind of get out of the situation that I was in for some people working multiple jobs is just to keep them afloat in their current situation. And that, that's reality for a lot of people, um, out in the world and listening to this podcast. And so that's why it was important to me at the beginning of this episode to really talk about this is not a roadmap. I I can't even begin to surmise or understand what the challenges are of people listening to this right now. Um, but I do remember, oh man, I remember some advice that I got when I was in my like I guess least free point in my life that I feel like would apply to anyone listening to this and I want to share it. When I graduated from UT with a master's in art education, I decided I made actually kind of a privileged decision. I made the decision not to go back to public school teaching and instead I took a job painting signs at Trader Joe's, which was to the sweet ass tune of $27,000 a year which is not enough (laughs) with loans and Austin cost of living. Not even close. Um, So I immediately made some pretty big sacrifices. I moved in with a friend who was very kind and let me split her mortgage with her, which was really affordable. She paid for utilities, so kind. Um, And I started working on the side, doing like little artsy side jobs. Uh, from Trader Joe's. And <laughs> and I was just like trying to figure out like what I was going to do and I felt like I had very little freedom and I was like maybe I just need to go into school teaching and immediately that feeling that like that disgusting like dread pit feeling in my stomach of no I just can't. I just can't go back. Like there's no way. <laughs> And I was feeling kind of trapped, like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I ended up running across, synchronistically, this guy out of San Antonio who had been um, in business. He had his MBA, and he had shifted like 180 degrees into being a working artist. And he had this really cool YouTube channel that gave creative uh, creative advice, or I'm sorry, that gave business advice to artists. It was awesome. And one of the things that he said was, um, you don't need lots of space and time to do what you want to do. You just need 10 minutes a day. <laughs> and He said, if that sounds like not enough, that's okay. But if for 10 minutes a day, you can do what you want to do, like really do what your soul wants to do. And then in a year from now, you're doing 30 minutes a day. And two years from now, an hour a day, he goes, you are more free than most people on the planet. And you're, and this is, you're in this for the long game. You don't have to be free right now. 
Um, But if you can be free for 10 minutes a day, if you can carve out 10 minutes a day to do what your soul wants to do, you are free. And that was revolutionary for me. I, I was working 60, 65, sometimes 70 hour weeks. I felt very stuck, but I knew I could find 10 minutes a day. And the beginning, and that was honestly, the I've talked about the beginning of my business being back when I was in grad school, but that was really the very, like, the, the, that was when it became real, <laughs> was when I started carving out 10, 15, 20 minutes a day to do just what I wanted to do. Uh, and I, I remember a couple of years later, I, I read this interview with Maya Angelou. Um, I'm sorry. No, not Maya Angelou. Um, Tony Morrison. I feel so shitty for mixing them up. <laughs> um, Toni Morrison would do that. She had children. She worked multiple jobs. And for a few hours in the middle of the night, she would carve out this time to write for herself. And that is your one job. It's your one job. Even if it's 10 minutes a day. Um... That's the work that we're put here to do. It's not to make money so we can buy shit. I think all of us can collectively agree that, agree with that, you know? And, you know, for, and maybe, there, maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there are people who just want to make money to buy shit. And that's fine. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if it would, forever I think eventually everybody gets to a point where that's not enough but if that's where people are right now that's fine right we're all kind of moving through this in our own organic and important way but it was important for me to share these stories with anyone coming out of a graduation portal because um no (sighs) It was important for me to share it as permission, (laughs) right? Like when I was 22, Lisa gave me permission, right? And then years later, (laughs) when I was drowning in my adult life, (laughs) the guy that I was dating gave me permission. I didn't tell that story on this episode, but it's on Instagram TV if you want to watch it. (laughs) And, um... And so if you need permission and there isn't anyone in your life giving it to you, here's this random chick on a podcast who just told you some really personal stories, (laughs) giving you permission. What do you want to do? Because that's the greatest gift that you can give the planet. And and I, I know that's such a radical idea, you know, like, we're so used to thinking of doing what we want as selfish. Um, I think a lot of times when people think of those doing what they want, they think of someone being destructive and doing what they want. Like, I don't know, like an example that comes to mind is someone with a substance abuse problem, right? Like someone who 
has drinks too much or does too many drugs and they've lost their job and they're wasting all their money and they're hurting their loved ones and they're hurting their health. And we point, you know, sort of a finger at that person as an example. And we say, look what happens when you do what you want. You got to keep yourself in line. That sort of tough love <laughs> fucking narrative. You know, what I'd like to suggest is the the person who's being destructive, destructive. I'm sure there's lots of reasons. There's lots of reasons that destruction happens in individual lives. But I think one of them is from repressing what their soul wanted for too long. What is, what is a better way to numb an unbearable situation than through substances? Substances numb. And if we're numbing, it's because we are living out of alignment with what our soul wants. And maybe not everyone ascribes to the idea of a soul. (laughs) And if that's you, you probably stopped listening to this a long time ago. (laughs) But I don't, you know, like people that are really doing what they want to do don't have to numb. That's why this is some of the hardest work you will ever, ever embark on. It's not, it's not easy. It's simple, not easy. It's really hard. Um, it's like, I think I just would like to wrap up with this, that I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest that you have to that you should live a life of total pleasure. Like, I use the word luxurious to describe Miami, but Miami was not straight pleasure. (laughs) Miami was full of normal adult shit. I had to pay bills. I had to clean the house. I did oil changes. I had to drive in rush hour. I had to go to work 45, 50 hours a week. Um, I was making barely enough money to live in Miami. (laughs) Like... There was lots of unglamorous parts about being there. So I'm not talking about avoiding pain. <laughs> but what I'm suggesting is that the normal pains of life will feel so much more bearable and, enjoy- and not enjoyable maybe, but bearable when you're doing what you want. I Driving in rush hour in Miami... I would just stare at the palm trees, not moving for like 20, 25 minutes from one intersection. And I would just be like, I'm in Miami. (laughs) It was great. (laughs) What if that's it? Like, what if that's your one job? (laughs) To be able to be in the moment of your life because your life is of your choosing. Even, I mean, (laughs) there were some really challenging times in the beginning of of my art business here in Austin where I used to cry to Jason and be like, I'm miserable. (laughs) And I'll never forget, he used to say, in the most loving way ever, by the way, he'd say, yeah, but this is what you, you chose this. You get to live a life that you're choosing. And there's a lot of people that don't get to do that. And ju- oh my gosh, that snapped me out of it. 
because he, he's right. And then, and then instantly all of the suffering became different because he made me realize, oh yeah, you chose this. If you want to choose different, you can, but this is what you want and you're getting it. And this is just the normal suffering that comes along with it. <laughs> That's your one job from from this random artist in my Austin's perspective. Take what resonates with you, leave the rest. But I'd like to kind of fervently, fervently, I don't know if that's a good word, insistently, insistently, is that a word? Is insistently a word? I'd like to insist. (laughs) You are not here to make money. It's not what you're here to do. Um, I think that the culture has done a pretty good job of convincing a lot of people that's what we're here to do. It's sure as shit convinced me. So, um, for huge chunks of my life. So, um, it's, uh, it's not what we're here to do y'all. And that's not to say that if you're like broke, that money isn't something that you should want. Like, holy hell, there was, when I was, (laughs) when I was making $600 a paycheck (laughs) in Austin in 2014, uh, money was absolutely on the agenda. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, But what I'm talking about is, is the long game. Money is not the long game. What do you want? If you do that, it is a gift to the planet because people who are doing what they want don't rage and stick their middle fingers up out the window of their cars in the middle of a Wednesday. (laughs) That's like a micro example. People doing what they want don't dump shit tons of oil into the ocean. That's a pretty radical thing to say. On a macro level, (laughs) when enough people are living the lives that their soul wants, some of the really shitty things that we're doing on the planet are going to get better. You could change the planet by doing what you want. You could. That's that's my objective for this episode. (sighs) I'm going to wrap it up there. And... Until next time, peace.